guys know, or maybe you don't know, like as soon as this is done, uh, we have a content team that uh, puts together discussion questions. And so those discussion questions go out and um, like immediately they go out to all the life group leaders. And so the very next day, Wednesday, Thursday, we had a life group submit on Sunday, Monday, all of our life groups were discussing Isaac's message from last week out of Jude 4. And um, the question was all about what does it look like to pervert the grace of God into sensuality? And what was fascinating about that being the question last week in life groups is virtually every life group moved from talking about that question into talking about people who are outside of the church perverting the grace of God. And it was like this, this sense of judgment came up with everybody who is in a life group. Now, I am not calling out any life group in particular here, okay? So I just wanna be very clear up front. Uh, uh, we, we all are wrestling with this. We're all part of a culture that has this dynamic of talking about insiders versus outsiders in the church. And these are the people inside the church and they behave this way. And those are the people outside the church and they behave this way. And inevitably what happened in that moment is that in life groups all across Orlando, people started talking about people outside the church and how they pervert the grace of God. And there was very little discussion about people who pervert the grace of God inside the church because we're Christians and we're religious and that's what we do, right? And so I'm part of this, we're all part of this. And I just found it interesting talking with life group leaders the next day, they were saying, ma'am, our discussion really got out of hand quickly. Like it was like that scene in Anchorman where the, the, they're having the fight, right? Like someone gets stabbed with a trident. You're like, whoa, that escalated quickly, right? Like every life group conversation bogged down on these issues of insiders and outsiders. And the predominant theme there was, well, what we know is that God's gonna judge those people who are outside the church, right? And everyone was like, yeah, that sounds basically right. In every life group, people were saying, yeah, it seems like God's gonna judge people outside the church. Well, um, as it happens, because our life groups are open, right? We had a lot of new Christians and non-Christians and people who like are anti-Christian who are showing up just trying to figure out what Christianity is all about. And so the topic of conversation like this train and this car moving in the same direction at the same point just went, right? And so all these non-Christians are like, oh, okay, so I'm outside the church, so God's gonna judge me, okay, right? And it's happening in the middle of these life groups, and it's just this like beautiful, wonderful kind of train wreck of a situation. You know what? We're okay with that. God's sovereign over all these things. People are being honest and cared for in life groups, and occasionally family gets messy, so we're okay with that. But I found it to be very interesting because the common belief that tends to float around in many religious circles is this. If you're inside the church, you're loved. If you're outside the church, God's gonna judge you. And today, Jesus or Jude, Jesus' brother, is going to uh, challenge that assumption just a little bit. So the, the format or the outline for this message, if we're, if we're playing into the teaching of Jesus, may, may follow this way. So I want you to just get prepared. This is the way tonight's gonna roll out. You have heard it said, or you may have heard it said, that Jesus judges people who are outside the church. But Jude's gonna tell us today that Jesus does judge people and people who are on the outside, but it may not necessarily be the church. It may be something else altogether. And so I wanna jump into Jude today and see exactly what he talks about. So if you have your Bibles or your phone apps open, you can open the book of Jude. We're in verses five, six, and seven, and I'm gonna read them all together after I take a sip of tea. I ain't nothing wrong with that for sure. Whoever said that, you are a wise person. I don't know if it's male or female. I'm just saying you're a wise person. So verse five, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it 
that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he, being Jesus, has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Really, Doug, this is the message you want to preach on Easter week? This seems really heavy and weird, and you just talked about like Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, really? This thing on Easter week? Yes, this thing on Easter week. So but before you get running too far down the rabbit trail, let me see if I can unpack this a little bit for us. So I want to make three observations of this text and talk about it, and then I'll make some application points in here. So here are the observations. First thing, if you have bulletins, you can write these down. I want you to notice that Jesus judges us, and this is good news. Jesus judges us, and this is good news. What Judah's doing is, remember, he's talking about all this division in the church. And you guys, I'm sure, have been in life groups before, church settings like this, or you've been in a Sunday school class. Maybe you grew up and you went to a youth group or a kids ministry or something. And, you know, there are always those people who show up, and they're a little bit difficult to handle, and they they always have a question, or they talk too much, or they kind of dominate conversations, or they say inappropriate things. Or maybe... Maybe they're just the people who say they follow Jesus and then you like see them Monday through Saturday and they have nothing to do with Jesus on Monday through Saturday, but then they wanna show up on Sunday and pretend like they're Christians and judge you for not being as good as them. And uh, I think we all, every person to a person in here, when that happens, we're just, there's this inner sense of fairness that goes on and we're like, no, right? But unless you're like, uh, like a superhero or something, there's nothing you can do about it. And so maybe you've been in that situation. I know I've certainly been in that situation. I find myself just seeing this person talk and I'm like, oh my gosh, I I wish I could shut this person up or say something eloquent that would put them in their place. Like there just seems to be this imbalance that's taken place. And I just, I I wish there was something out there that could bring justice to the situation, right? And here's what Jude's saying. There's all this division going on in the church, but don't worry the thing you need to know is that Jesus is the good judge. He judges us. And this is good news. Uh, we're going to talk about who he judges in a little bit, but, but he, on point in these three verses, the overall theme that emerges is that Jesus is judging these people. He is destroying the unbelievers. He is keeping angels bound uh, in fire. And he's also bringing the sense of judgment and um, righteous retribution to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll talk about those in a second. But Jesus is a good judge, or he's a judge. And this is good news. So I just want to spend a few minutes talking about why the fact that Jesus is judging us and this idea of judgment is actually really good news to us. Um, The the problem begins here. Every one of us in this room has an understanding of right and wrong, okay? No matter how we define right and wrong, everyone in this room has a sense of right and wrong. And it's like there's this invisible line that we're all aware of that when someone crosses it, there's just something inside of us. We're like, no, 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 right? Like, get back over there, right? Uh, No matter what it is, no matter what area, we understand right from wrong. And when someone crosses that line, we want to be the line guarder there. But the problem is, again, like like I said, most of us, we don't know how to go about articulating that that sense of right and wrong or those categories. We don't don't know how to kind of approach that conversation. And so 
most of us find ourselves being silent and frustrated at this issue. And that's a really terrible way to live in life, right? Where you're silent and you're frustrated and you're like, people are doing all this injustice and I feel like I don't have a voice. And for most of us, just kind of say that. We feel like we don't have a voice. There's nothing we could say. And most of us, if we're honest, wish we could appeal to a higher power who could somehow come out and speak on that voice. So a great example of this is when the Parkland thing happened, right? It's a terrible tragedy. And the students who are part of this, they felt like they didn't have a voice. And so they called on government and media to come help them get a voice. Now I have this bigger authority who's gonna come in and tell me that like this is right and wrong and we're standing on the side of right. This is how every human operates on every given issue. Well, the good news that Jude wants us to understand is guess what? Um, We have someone who is gonna be that stronger voice speaking to the issue of right and wrong and his name's Jesus. And uh, something I think would be helpful for us because I think in religious circles, we tend to see people get this wrong is, is this idea of tennis. I think tennis is probably the best analogy to this sense of right and wrong. And it helps us to see why Jesus uh, being a judge is such good news. Um, anybody in here play tennis? We have any tennis players? Okay. All right. Okay. Two, two tennis players. Okay. It's a little old school. Uh, tennis, right? So here's basically how tennis operates. There is this bounded uh, rectangle, like a line and everything inside the rectangle is in. Everything outside the rectangle is out. I'm simplifying it, obviously. There's a net in the middle and there are two players at at minimum. And the goal of this game is to hit the ball to to make it touch one time inside the bounds and for the other player to hit it back across the net. Bounces once and you go back. It's a lot like table tennis if you guys have played that or ping pong. It's just a little bit on a little bit bigger plane, right? Well, uh, so the whole game is you're trying to hit the ball on one bounce without it going out of bounds. And this seems fine, but anybody who's played like kind of pickup tennis knows that at some point in the heat of competition, a ball hits the line and the person who hit it's like, that's in. And the person on the other side like, no, 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 that was out. And like, no, it's in, no, it's out, no, it's in, no, it's out, no, it's in, no, it's out. And now you're in a game of verbal tennis back and forth, right? And so the game just starts on the plane, extends into your relationship. And you get to a point where you just charge the net and people, you know, it's heated and you're like, oh, I can't believe that no is in. And you're arguing and suddenly everybody becomes like a stereotypical Italian, like their hands come up here and they're like, what? What's going on here? I don't know, oh, much. I don't know, oh, right? And this thing's happening. And when you get into those moments, you go, you know what I need? I wish we had some kind of external authority who could speak into this matter. And that's why in professional tennis, you have not only the boxed line, but you also have this line judge who sits perched up on this seat high above who can watch every play. And he can say definitively, that's in, that's out. And what Jude is saying is, in the matter of reality and human existence, we all know that there is an invisible line that marks in from out when it comes to morals. But God doesn't just give us that and hope we just figure it out, you know, batting it back and forth and the strongest arguer kind of gets it until we're just red in the face, right? Jesus, Jude says, Jesus is this judge who sits in the box and is able from his perspective to see down and tell us with with authority what's inside and out. And I think that's a really great method. But the, the thing that makes it good news about this isn't that Jesus is just the line judge helping us to figure out what's in and out. Uh, It goes a step further. If the Bible is right, Jesus happens to also be the greatest tennis player who's ever played, right? He has played the the life of a human perfectly. He's won every match at every point. He's won all the trophies. He's won all the acclaim. He's won all the accord. Everyone hails him as the greatest tennis player of all time. And uh, 
at the end of all of that, at the end of his career, what he decided to do was not take any of the glory for himself, but to share this glory and this wealth and this fame and all these resources with everybody who's playing the tennis match. And then he sits as the judge, helping us learn how to play the match perfectly to the best of our ability. He is not only the judge, he is the greatest tennis player of all time. He is not only the most moral person who's lived a life ever, he is also God who created everything, sitting on the sideline, helping us to referee between right and wrong, not because he wants to be a stickler, but because he wants us to play the greatest human life ever. It is good news that Jesus is our judge. But it's not only that he's a, he's a good judge. The second thing I want you to notice is this, Jesus is also a powerful judge. He's a powerful judge. Jesus judges human beings. And then in verse six, he judges angels. And let me just stop there. Uh, When it comes to philosophical categories of being, let's just go philosophical for a second here. There there are essentially within a, a Hebrew and Greek worldview, three categories of being. The highest category being, obviously, being God, right? God is a being. He's the strongest, you know, most powerful being there is. And the category below is angelic beings, right? Uh, Somewhat omnipresent, not really omniscient, not necessarily all-powerful, but they have some heightened powers, right? And then there are human beings, the lowest form of being. Again, being is still the preferred category to be in, but it's the lowest form of being. And what Judas told us in verse five and six is this, Jesus, who is God, is, has authority over angels and authority over all humans. In other words, Jesus has power over all creations of being. And then in verse seven, he starts to expand uh, the radius or the scope of his power to, su- to suggest or to include that Jesus is sovereign over cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, a whole communities of people. And you see from that, that now that, that's getting bigger. His expanse is getting bigger. In other words, the trajectory of where Jude is going is this. Jesus has unlimited power to be authority over everything. So it's not just that Jesus is a judge and he's a good judge. And he's the person who's lived the perfect life, who is uniquely able to judge us with a correct perspective so that we can play the human life to the best way possible. It's also that he, his, his judgedom, His authority extends unlimitedly across the universe. He is a good and a powerful judge. And that's good news for us here today because the one who judges us has the authority and the right and the wisdom to handle that perfectly. But that's not even the real sermon here today. That was just the precursor. I'm just letting you guys know, I want y'all to know that because it frames everything we're gonna talk about now. Can we, can we get into the, like the heart of the matter here today? Because this is what it's really all about. The third observation I want you to see is really asking you this question. It's who are the unbelievers? In verse five, Jesus says this, or Jude says this. I wanna remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Question, who are those? Who are those who did not believe? Who is Jesus talking about there? Now, what's really interesting is right now, every one of us in our own hearts are going, 
oh, I know who those are. And we're judging, right? We're like, I know who those, who those are who don't believe. Yeah, it's all those like pagan people out there who always mess up all the time. They never come on Tuesday nights. They never come on Sunday nights. They show up every once in a while. We're like, mm-hmm, I know where you've been, right? We know who those people are. Again, if you've been raised in religious culture, maybe you're not a Christian here today, but you've been around religious people. This is how we religious people think. I'm including myself because I'm part of this, right? Um, there's this tendency to think, Oh yeah, Jesus is judging unbelievers and unbelievers are people who are outside the church, right? Is this really what Jude has in mind? I want you to notice who he's talking about, the people who are unbelievers, because he gives us the tip off. It's Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards, destroyed those who did not believe. Jude is talking about the book of Exodus. Now you guys remember that story, right? Uh, if you haven't read it, uh, if you haven't never read it in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, chapter 14, Uh, building up to chapter 14. Um, It was commemorated in at least two films, The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston. Uh, In 1998, made an animated film called The Prince of Egypt. Anybody watched The Prince of Egypt before? Right, it's on Netflix. You guys got it. Now, here's what I have to say. Uh, I became a Christian in 1997. Incidentally, when my man Alec was born, on the day of Alec's birth, I was reborn. Cool, cool fact, right? Like seriously, Alec was born, well, I won't give you his birth date, but um, I'll give you his social security, I'm just kidding. Uh, so on the day he was born, I prayed to receive Christ and we didn't know each other, but we found that out later in life. But so 1997, uh, that's true, that's true. Um, so I was born, in, I mean, I was reborn in 1997. Uh, this film comes out in 1998. Uh, I was a very new Christian. I watched it, it was just tremendous. It just impacted my life. The soundtrack um, back then, we would get CDs at Walmart, right? Because I'm old. And uh, I just got the soundtrack and I put it in my Discman and like put in the headphones and listened to it while I skateboarded. It was tremendous. Um, really cool film. Well, I haven't seen it in like 10 years, maybe longer. And my kids are now at the age where they're learning about Moses and they're learning about the Exodus and they're you know lear- reading from the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And so I just decided one night we should sit down and watch this film together. Like they're at the age where they can handle that. So we put on The Prince of Egypt and we're watching and they're like amazed by it. And we got to the scene of the Exodus. And I'm now watching this as a, you know, middle-aged suburban parent uh, who's been a Christian now for 20 years. And I'm starting to see some things I didn't see before. Now keep in mind, I'm I'm gonna show you a few clips from here in just a second, but keep in mind, here's what's happened if you're not up to speed. They're, uh, the people of God, the Israelites, they're in bondage. They're slaves. They're enslaved in Egypt. They're doing all the building of all of the pyramids and all the buildings and stuff like that. And Pharaoh is basically this taskmaster who's just driving them towards uh, basically unfair labor practices. Um, and they're under oppression. And God raises up Moses to go and talk to Pharaoh to tell him, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, Psh, nah, brah. And so God decides to send miracles in the forms of plagues to get Pharaoh's attention. And slowly over a matter of plagues, uh, finally with the last plague taking place during the first Passover, this angel of the Lord comes into uh, Egypt, kills all the firstborn in every family, except for the houses where they put the lamb's blood above the doorpost, right? So this is the very beginning of Jesus being the lamb uh, covering over the house. And when that happens, the angel of the Lord passes over that house and goes to the next house. And that's where we get the name Passover, which starts Friday. And so after this Passover miracle, Pharaoh uh, says, okay, you guys can get out of town. And so Moses gathers up the couple million 
Israelite people who are in Egypt and they decide to trek their way out of town headed towards the promised land. So, you know, everything's going well for the first day or so. And then they get to this one point where they get to the Red Sea. It's about 16 miles to cross the Red Sea at its most narrow point. And the people are like, uh, the Dutch haven't invented boats yet. So um, I don't know what we do, like life rafts. I don't know, Moses. And so as you guys are gonna see in this, Moses takes the staff and hits it down and the waters part. And now there's dry land for about 16 miles that they can walk across to get to the other side. Well, Pharaoh's army is coming in and uh, at that point, uh, and they decide Pharaoh after the while has like buyer's remorse. It's like, oh man, <laughs> it's like the worst splurge purchase ever. You're like, yeah, I'm gonna let all of the uh, labor forces leave. That'll be a great idea. And then later on, he's like, playing Xbox. He's like, oh, that was a terrible idea. Uh, round up, boys. Let's go suit up. We're going to go after them. So he's chasing after them. And God sends this pillar of fire, like a fire tornado, like a fire NATO to kind of like hit the ground and just stop them there. And that's what you see. So I want you to watch this first clip here. This is Moses when he's parting the sea. You can see the fire NATO in the background. Check this out. this staff, you shall do my wonders. So this goes on for a while and the people start kind of crossing over and I'm watching this with my kids and we're watching. I'm like, wow, this is incredible. Like people are walking on dry land and they look over and lightning happens and suddenly there's an aquarium. There's like fish swimming and like a whale. And they're like, oh my goodness, right? And you know, there's people who are in like carts wheeling across and keep in mind, it's a 16 mile journey. It probably takes them two days to get across the river. So uh, or the, the sea. So, I mean, this is a two-day phenomenon where the water's being held up and the, the fire NATO is happening for two days and the people, the, the army and Pharaoh are sitting there for two days watching a fire NATO keep them from going forward. So you got to imagine like all the guys who are in camp, they see the fire NATO and they're just like, whoa, right? What do we do, man? Like, should we be should we be rolling on this? Like, I, I don't know, man. We, I mean, two days to go back and forth on if this is a smart idea. Finally, at the very end of this, um, for whatever reason, God removes the fire NATO, and this is the response of Pharaoh and his army. So take a look at this scene right here. Okay, 
So I remember seeing this with my kids uh, a few weeks ago, and something struck me odd about this. There are, there are two kinds of people here that I just don't know what they're thinking, right? Because if you think about it, this is not a rational response. And the first people I want to talk about is Pharaoh and his army. Now, again, for two days, you've been watching over a million Israelites cross 16 miles on water that is moved apart by some great power, right? Like you wake up, you get, there's nothing else to do. There's no cell service. They don't have board games. There's no settler of Catan. They are the settlers. This is Catan. There's, <laughs> right? And they're just sitting there like, what do you want to do today? You want to watch the fire or the water that's being separated? Like, oh, no, let's watch the fire. Okay, right? So they're just watching it. They're drinking tea. They're like, man, that's a big fire NATO. What do you think that is, an F1? No, I think it's an F2. Okay, right? All day, right? There's nothing else to do. Then they could move. And they're like, well, you want to watch the water? Wow, look, it's still parted. Yeah, okay. What do you think is parting that? Is it wind? Nope. Do you think it's an alien being? It might be, right? That, that's it for two whole days. And then the moment the fire NATO leaves, all of these people are aware some greater power is causing all of this. Their first thought is, let's go after this being and his people who have caused all these great things to happen. That's a smart idea. Pharaoh's like, charge. And everyone's like, yes, we're on board. And they go, listen, if I was in that army, here's what I would say. I would be like, yo, Pharaoh. I love you, but I'm out, right? I recognize I'm going AWOL. I recognize that. I recognize that the next sporting contest when they play the Egyptian national anthem, I should probably not stand because I'm a deserter. I get all of the shame that's gonna come upon me and my family, but yo, fire NATO, man. I don't mess with fire NATOs and I don't mess with waters being spread apart. There's some kind of supernatural thing going on here and I am not moving forward in this. Thank you very much. Here's my pink slip. I will show myself back to Egypt if that's okay, right? That would be my conversation. I wouldn't even be scared because look, it's a fire tornado that's been going for two days and I've never seen anything like this before, right? A rational person sees that and is like, rolls up over the hill. It's like, okay, we're gonna get these Israelites. There's a fire tornado. See you guys, I'm gone right now, right? Like I don't even make it over the hill to the camp. I'm just gone, right? That's what a rational person does. But here's what Pharaoh and his people do. They see truth and they avoid it and keep going. This is what an unbeliever is. An unbeliever is, is not, unbelievers are not those who are outside the church. Unbelievers are those who are outside of truth, okay? Unbelievers are not those outside the church. Not necessarily. Unbelievers, according to Jude, are those who are outside of truth. They're people who see what truth is and they avoid it and they go the other way. They see that they should move towards this true area and they just act like it doesn't exist. Pharaoh and his army see the tornado, the fire nado. They see the waters parted. They recognize it's 16 miles across that even if they charge them, they're in a precarious position in the middle of a, a sea that some type of foreign deity, who by the way, is probably on the side of Moses, who is now across, is in charge of. So even if they're in the middle of the sea, did they think they were going to be able to swim? Like this is just not a wise, truthful, solid proposition. They know all of the risks. They have calculated everything and they say, we don't care about any of that stuff. We're just going into the water and so be it. This is the portrait of an unbeliever. And this is the kind of person Jesus judges. You know what the truth is and you avoid it. This is an unbeliever. Today, who is an unbeliever who fits into that category? Who are the Pharaoh's armies of today? 
probably these are people who are like the anti, 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 anti Christian people. Like Christianity is so much something that they know and have studied. They hate it and they attack it all the time. These are people philosophically we call anti-theists. They don't care what your argument is for theism. They're against it. They're people who read the Bible just to shoot the Bible down. And at no point, even when God starts to move in their heart, they're like, nope, 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 nope. And they choke it up because they're so poisoned by their own hatred for truth. They're avoiding it all times. These are the kinds of unbelievers, or at least one kind of unbeliever that Jesus is against, that Jesus is uh, calling out, that Jesus is judging. It's not that he's against them forever. It's that he's, he's crying out to them, please stop going that way. Come back this way. Listen to truth. Listen to reason. Now, Having said that, some of us in here are going, yeah, I know people like that. Mm-hmm. That's my boss, right? My boss just doesn't listen to truth. I tell them all the time they don't listen to her. That's my teacher. That's that one professor I have, right? That just no matter what, anytime I even say, God bless you, you're like, don't bring God into this classroom. You're like, oh, whoa, what's going on? Calm down, brother. It's okay. I was just using a polite, you know, euphemism here. Just calm down. Or it's just that one person you know on the block that every time you show up and you invite them to Easter, they're like, they're like, no, I, I would... I would never do anything so unsophisticated as go to church, right? We know some of those people and we think about that. But there's another kind of person in this same story. And that person is uh, represented by the people of Israel. Because what this movie doesn't tell you is that on the other side of the Red Sea, once the water collapses, Pharaoh's army is all kept up in it. At the very end of chapter 14, that happens. Moses turns around and is like, oh my goodness, we made it. I never thought we would make it this far. He's like the ultimate mother on a road trip, right? There's like a million of his kids there and he's like, oh, oh man, I need to sit down for just a second, right? Like this was like terrible. We just made it across that journey, right? And then in chapter 15, his sister decides to start singing this music spontaneously. It's like the ultimate charismatic, like follow-up, uh, um, spontaneous worship moment to the song that they recorded. Now they're recording all the spontaneous stuff that's going on. It's Miriam's song and she starts singing. They have this giant mega church worship service. Everybody is praising God and it's so amazing. You're like, man, this was a moment. You have the guys there who are documenting everything on their phone. They're pulling out. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm posting this to YouTube immediately. And the other guy's like, why are you posting to YouTube? Is this 1996, right? You should post to Instagram. That's where everything is, right? And he's like, YouTube didn't exist in 1996. I bet you didn't know that, right? And so all this is going on. They're having this great moment. Like, what, what is happening, right? Chapter 16. Two verses into chapter 16. One chapter away from the fire NATO. Half a chapter away from this amazing worship service. Here's what it says. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, these people who just walked 16 miles across dry land, their calves are still sore from the trek, right? They're like, when they get up to grumble, they're like, oh, my back hurts from walking 16 miles through this dry riverbed that, you know, God miraculously moved yesterday. But I need to talk to you about something, Moses, right? They've still got ice packs on their knees because they're so sore from the walk. Here's what they say to Moses, because they think this is a good idea. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. 
right? That's basically the Christian middle finger, if you've ever seen it before, right? They get to the other side. God has just provided this big miracle and they turn around and they start grumbling against Moses. What has God done for me today? I know what he did for me yesterday with a fire nato in the water, but today I'm hungry and there doesn't seem to be any available food. So I'm gonna complain against you, Moses. You know who these people are? They're unbelievers because they know what the truth is and yet they're going the other way. And these are the same kind of people that Jesus is going to bring judgment to. These are the same kind of people that Jesus is trying to call away from the ledge. These are the same kind of people that Jesus is saying, you have nothing to do with me right now. You grew up in church. You know every verse in the Bible. Anytime you get to life group, you can talk on and on and on about Calvinism and Arminianism and all these theological terms, right? You can talk about Baptists. You can talk about Pentecostals. You can talk about Presbyterians. You know all the lingo. You know all the buzzwords. You know everything. You know all the truth. And the minute you leave life group, you don't care a a lick for it, right? You just live your life like nothing else matters. You know the truth and you turn and you go the other way. It's not those outside the church that Jesus brings judgment to. It's those who are outside the truth. And the good news of Jesus is this, that during this resurrection week, what he wants to call people to is not to this impossible standard of religion where you're constantly thinking about, is this right? Is this wrong? What's in bounds? What's not in bounds? How do I live? It's to call uh, all these people into a relationship with truth. And here's the good news. Jesus is the truth. And so the reason Jesus... Uh, comes against or brings admonition to or calls out to people who are walking apart from truth is because he is the truth. And so in light of all of this, in light of the fact that we wanna talk about the good news of Jesus's judgment on Easter week, um, here's what I want us to do. Uh, Maybe your your eyes have been opened here a little bit. Maybe you see yourself in a little bit of the, the Pharaoh's army who's here today. Or maybe you see yourself in a little bit of the people of Israel who are here today. Here's the good news, right? The good news is Jesus has opened this door to this pathway towards following truth. And there's some very easy steps you can take today, wherever you are, no matter where you are today, you're a non-Christian, you're a new believer, you're coming back to church for the first time, you're in Pharaoh's army. If you're really honest, maybe you're the people of God grumbling against Moses. There are some steps you can take today. And there's three steps I wanna give you uh, before we sing a song. And here they are. Step number one or application point number one. Just remember, If you can follow truth, you can follow Jesus. If you can follow truth, you can follow Jesus. In John 14, six, Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father, no one comes to Yahweh except through me. And that's really good news for many of us who maybe didn't grow up in church and we don't understand the religion thing. We don't understand when to stand and when to sit or kind of how all this, this stuff works. I didn't grow up in church. I don't know if you know my story. I grew up atheist, right? My dad was actually, he could have been in Pharaoh's army. My dad might've been the first guy that's like, yeah, let's avoid the fire NATO, right? Uh, so I grew up kind of, I didn't understand Christian culture, Christian subculture. Like this was just all very new to me. I remember when I became a Christian, I felt behind all of my peers for like the first 10 years of following Jesus. It just seemed like everybody else knew way more than me. So I had to go to school and I was like the remedial Christian who had to go to school and learn everything and catch up with everybody because it was like this foreign language. And this may be you who's here today, right? You feel like, man, if I follow Jesus, I'm not gonna know anything about the culture. I'm not gonna know how to operate. And here's the simple truth of all of this. If you can follow truth, you can follow Jesus because Jesus is the truth. 
All you need is to take a step towards following Jesus and you can be fine. That's step one. Step two or application point two is this. Remember that truth is going to disagree with us every now and then. Truth is going to disagree with us every now and then. Part of the reason that many of the people who might identify with Israelites, grumbling Israelites, is that uh, they know this truth and the problem is this truth disagrees with us. Uh, There's a pastor named Tim Keller who has this statement. He says, uh, if your God never disagrees with you, you might be worshiping an idealized version of yourself, right? And I think that's very true for most of us, especially if you grew up kind of inheriting American Christianity, which is often like uh, moralistic, therapeutic deism, like God exists to make you moral and to make you feel good about yourself, right? And that's, what, that's the kind of Christianity you kind of go towards. The pastor never challenges you when he gets up to speak and uh, people are never, uh, never holding you accountable. You're kind of, it's just like me and Jesus have a good thing going and that's enough and no one ever calls that out on you. But here, here's the thing you should understand. Truth is gonna disagree with you sometime. That's how truth operates because most human beings drift towards that which is comfortable and convenient. And the problem with living in this world and living by the standards of this world and this culture, don't get me wrong, we have a great culture in Orlando, right? It's a great city. Uh, We have a great culture in America. There's the arts and there's the financial sector and there's all these like facets of American culture that are amazing and wonderful and beautiful. But if you try to follow culture, culture is gonna push you towards convenience and comfort. And you can find yourself drifting on this pathway to hell in complete comfort and with complete convenience, right? Um, It's just like this conveyor belt. You're like, oh, I step on this. Where does it go? I don't care. I don't have to move. So this is great as it's leading you to the slaughter down here, right? Uh, This is, we're just describing how most cows are killed, right? They get on a conveyor belt and they move towards slaughter. And that's the way our culture operates. Again, it's great. I would love to step on and be like, this is good, but I got to get off here, right? And get on and be like, okay, this is nice, but I got to get off here. And the thing that's telling me to get off the culture at different uh, points is truth. Because I get on and I'm moving this way and I start moving towards slaughter and truth calls to me and says, hey, this is slaughter. You're like, oh, you're right. This is slaughter. I should get off here. Okay, right? This is how Christians interact with culture, right? Love this music. Love this music. That song's kind of bad. I should probably get off here, right? Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to download that one. I want all songs except that one on that album, right? Uh, Because that's how it works. Truth confronts us. It says convenience is not the highest value. It says comfort is not the highest value. It says what you want is not the highest value. There's something objective out there. And his name is Jesus. And when we follow him, he's gonna, he's gonna confront us, right? So it's okay, don't be afraid and don't be alarmed if you start following Jesus and one day you start to develop this thing called conviction, right? Uh, I remember when I first became a Christian, um, I went home and there was this movie at the time, right? Uh, 1997, the way we got movies was on a VCR, right? Uh, I don't even think DVDs were popular. They had just introduced this thing called Laserdisc, right? Which was like a DVD that was like this big, but it only had like a 30 minute movie on it. So after 15 minutes, you had to like take it out and turn it over and watch the other 15 minutes. I know it sounds crazy, but that's how we lived way back in the stone ages of 1997. Um, And so I had recorded this movie on a VHS tape and I, I actually had recorded it before I became a Christian. And I remember I'd been a Christian for a couple of weeks and I went home and I was like, oh, I have this movie and I want to go watch it. And I put it in and it wasn't a very wholesome movie. And so it came out and I remember like watching a few minutes of it. And for the first time I experienced this thing called conviction and it scared me because again, I, I don't know anything about being a Christian or what you're supposed to say and not say. So I just remember I'm watching this movie and some bad stuff starts happening. And I went, oh, F, I should probably turn this off. 
And then I went, I probably shouldn't say the F word, right? <laughs> and I'm now experiencing my second act of conviction here. And I was like, huh. I was like, okay, God, is this the way it's going to be? I'm just going to do something stupid. And you're going to be like, uh, excuse me, Doug, point of order. Um, let's maybe not do that next time. And God was like, yes, that's exactly how I'm going to be. Because I care more about your character and your witness than your convenience. God cares more about our character than our convenience. So truth is gonna come against us from time to time. Don't be freaked out, that's normal. That's the second step. Third step, teachability is the only shortcut. I want you to remember that teachability is the only shortcut. Uh, you wanna know the way to kind of follow Jesus and to be able to be in the best possible position for him to come against you is to go in following Jesus, taking a posture of teachability. And teachability just says this, listen, Jesus, whatever you want, I'm on board. Uh, I recognize some of it's gonna be turbulent, but I'm on board. Uh, the, the, a good way to think about this is uh, I don't like flying. Uh, just in general, I don't like being in any vehicle I'm not driving uh, because I have control issues. I'm just admitting this. I hope you guys will accept me. My name is Doug and I have control issues, right? Um, so anytime I get in a flight, I'm just like, oh my goodness, 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 oh my goodness. And they take off and I'm like, oh no. And then they hit turbulence and I'm like, oh. Like if Natalie will tell you, I'll like grab her hand and I get into the fetal position and I start crying and I'm like, oh, we're all gonna die. And then the stewardess is coming by like, excuse me, sir. Like, can I get you some alcohol? We just, whatever we have to do to get you through this flight and not talking, that's great, right? We'll start with the hard stuff and then we'll move down. Like just please stop yelling, sir. You're, you're frightening the children, right? That's me on a plane. Uh, but here's the thing. I know oftentimes I got to get to my destination. And so I'm willing to go through the turbulence to get to that destination. And that's teachability. Hey, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you in truth. And I know there's this destination you got to get me. So I'm willing to go through the turbulence. It's called teachability. And I'll endure the turbulence if I can get there to that destination and enjoy what you have for me on the other side. Remember, you can follow truth, you can follow Jesus. Truth is often gonna come against you. It's gonna disagree with you, but that's okay. Teachability is the shortcut that, that helps you get from point A to point B. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for my friends here today that you would help us to become the most teachable Christians, teachable followers of truth in all of Orlando. And here's the reason why. Because the life of teachability, the life of following truth, it's the good life. There may be some of us who are here today and we don't know truth. And it's maybe not because we haven't been wanting to follow truth. It's just maybe we haven't ever been around truth a lot. And maybe we're coming around truth for the first time. So Jesus, I pray that you would just have mercy and peace and love. May it be multiplied to those who are here, who are hearing about this. If there are friends who are here today who aren't believers, Jesus, I pray that you would speak to them right now and nudge them towards some questions, articulating some questions about what it would look like to follow truth. There are some people who've been far away from Jesus who are here today, far, far away from you. Jesus, I pray that you would move them, nudge them a little bit closer. Would you help them to know that around here, we'll make room on the couch, we'll make room on the table, we'll make room in our lives because that's just the way that you've called us to be. So please, Jesus, help them take another step forward. And maybe Jesus, there are people who are here today and they've been pretending to follow you within the safe, convenient confines of church culture they've never, ever made the decision to be teachable and follow truth. And so Jesus, would you help them to take that first step towards living the genuine Christian life? 
Whatever you need to do here tonight as we have a response time, Jesus, I pray that you do it for your glory and for our good and the good of the city of Orlando that we love. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Hey, I wanna invite you to stand if you're able. The way we respond here is kind of twofold. The band's gonna sing a song here and our staff, including myself, we're gonna be down front, be a couple of guys and a couple of girls. And so if there's any kind of prayer request you have or if there's anything you wanna just talk about, we'll be right down front here and everyone in this room is gonna be cool. Again, there's gonna be no judgment because I just told them if they judge people, they're all bad people, right? So no one's gonna judge. We are in the most non-judgmental mood ever right here today. So seriously, if you have need for prayer, if you have need to talk about something, you know, Britt's right here, I would love to meet with you. Uh, Isadora's over here, girls, David, uh, uh, Isaac's right over here. I myself, I'll stand right here. Uh, so if you have prayer needs, I want to invite you during the course of the song to come down and pray with us. If you don't have prayer needs that you need anybody else to pray with you about, I want to encourage you to maybe just pray where you are. Um, but if you're someone who just loves singing and you just, there's something in your heart and you want to sing it back to God, Justin is going to lead us, and the band are going to lead us in a song called In Christ Alone, right? Uh, and it's the Shane and Shane version that has the like, O's in them, which is my favorite version of this song. So can I just encourage you? If you're gonna sing the Shane and Shane version of In Christ Alone, uh, just let it go, right? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, what Jesus wants from us is to make joyful noise. I can't sing, but I can make joyful noise. And so maybe if you wanna sing or make some joyful noise out there, you just make it. So can we all just turn to one another and go, I'm gonna be noisy like right now. And so just, just we're cool with this. So if you wanna come down and pray, pray, great. If you wanna pray where you are, great. If you wanna make noise, great. However you need to respond, I want to invite you to respond as we sing the song. Definitely.